reading this morning is found, um, it's in the bulletin, it's actually printed as three chapters, but I will not be reading three chapters to you this morning. But if you could turn to Numbers 22, verses 1 through 31, it can be found on page 1122 on your pew Bible, so 112. Again, our, chap- our scripture reading this morning will be from Numbers 22, 1 through 31. It's also misprinted up there. (laughs) Numbers 22. Then the Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw that all all that Israel had done to the Amorites and Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, This horde is going to lick up everything around us, as an ox licks up grass of the field. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pithor, near the river, in his native land. Balak said, A people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people, because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the country. For I know that those you bless are blessed, and those you curse are cursed. The elders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the fee for divination. When they came to Balaam, they told him what Balak had said. Spend the night here, Balaam said to them, and I will bring you back the answer the Lord gives me. So the Moabite princess stayed with him. God came to Balaam and asked, Who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent me this message. A people that has come out of Egypt covers the face of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. Perhaps then I will be able to fight them and drive them away. But God said to Balaam, You do not go with them. You must not put a curse on those people, because they are blessed. The next morning, Balaam got up and said to the Balak princes, Go back to your own country, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the Moabite princes returned to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. Then Balak sent other princes, more numerous and more distinguished than the first. They came to Balaam and said, This is what Balak, son of Zippor, says. Do not let anything keep you from coming to me, because I will reward you handsomely and do whatever you say. Come and put a curse on these people for me. But Balaam answered them, Even if Balak gave me his palace filled with silver and gold, I could not do anything great or small to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. Now stay here tonight as the others did, and I will find out what else the Lord will tell me. That night, God came to Balaam and said, Since these men have come to summon you, go with them, but do only what I tell you. Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. But God was very angry when he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, she turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat her to get her back on the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in the narrow path between two vineyards, with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it, so he beat her again. 
Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam, and he was angry and beat her with his staff. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? Balaam answered the donkey, You have made a fool of me, and if I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, I am, not, am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, he said. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. May God bless the reading of his word. Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you this morning. So if you have one of our um, youth guys or one of our college guys on your Christmas gift list this year, and you're racking your brains thinking about what to get them, um, I heard about a product this week that I'm sure any of these guys would love, and it would make you the most popular gift giver this year. Uh, a company came out with this. If you can see it. It is a bacon-scented pillowcase. The company says that using advanced technology that they stole from NASA, they were able to make this pillowcase have the scent of bacon, and this I quote, in order to permeate your mind, your, excuse me, permeate your dreams and expand your mind. They claim that this pleasing aroma should last for six to 12 months, even through multiple washings and sleep, sleep drool. Um, the cost per pillowcase is $12.99, but they say that due to high demand, it will take an extra week for shipping. So if you want to get this in time for Christmas, you better order this now. I heard this and I was wondering if, you know, a person using this pillowcase will actually be dreaming about bacon and then start eating his pillow and wake up with a mouthful of feathers in the morning. But it's just, to me, it's just crazy. And it's amazing to me, like, the kind of things people can and, and do think, think of and, and the kind of stuff people come up with. And as we get into our sermon for this morning, we're going to shift from swine to donkeys. And we're going to see that no matter what kind of things people can devise, nothing can stop God's stubborn persistence and gracious love in fulfilling his redemptive purposes for the world. Now to back up a bit, remember that when God created the world, he created everything good. The world and all that was in it was good. Events like the one with Michael Brown and Ferguson and Eric Gardner in Staten Island wouldn't have happened because there would be no crime. There would be no prejudice. There was order. There was racial harmony. There wouldn't have been beheadings and genocide like we were reading about in the Middle East and in Africa because there was peace and there was love. But it's when humans decided to disregard God's order and commandments and decided to do things their own way, that chaos ensued. And we find ourselves in the state that we're in. But God wasn't caught by surprise. He was always aware that this would happen. And out of his love, he had a, always had a plan to bring about redemption, to restore things to the way that they were supposed to be. 
And this is the meta-narrative of the Bible. And this is what we've been learning over the past few months as we've been preaching through an overview of scripture, starting with the first five books in the Bible. If you were here last week, uh, you probably remember that Pastor Chuck gave her a short review over all the things we've covered so far, and he even gave us a pop quiz. And one of the things he asked us was, what were the three promises God gave to Abraham? And all of you were very good. Most of you knew that the first promise was people, you know, descendants as numerous as dust, right? And the second promise was land, right? And the third promise was blessing to the nations, right? And so it's here with this third promise that we see God's redemptive plan unfold for the world. He will use Israel to bring about his redemptive purposes. They will be a blessing to all the nations. But think about it. In saying this, God is actually putting all his chips on the line. He isn't hedging his bet at all. Because if Israel ceases to exist as a nation, if Israel doesn't fulfill this promise... It's the end of God's plan. We don't find a plan B in the Bible. There's no other nation mentioned to take over. So we're going to see this morning several things that could have come into play that could cause God's plan to implode. But in spite of all these things that could go wrong, God was persistent and gracious in ensuring that his plans would succeed. And so if you already have your Bibles open to Numbers, keep it open to Numbers 22 because we're going to be referencing much from this passage. And as Emily kind of alluded to, we're going to be going forward into some of the other chapters as well. And the first thing we're going to see is that God is stubbornly persistent despite opposition from the outside, despite opposition from the outside. So here in Numbers 22, we find the Israelites making preparations to enter the promised land. And in our chapter, we find them traveling to the plains of Moab. And it doesn't necessarily uh, say this uh, in this verse, but Moab is actually where they will stage their attack on Canaan. And this Moabite king, Balak, sees probably more than a million Israelites coming his way. And not being sure what their intentions are, he's scared. What makes them more afraid is he just saw that the Israelites wiped out the Amorites. And the Amorites actually recently defeated the Moabites. So if the Amorites defeated the Moabites and the Israelites defeated the Amorites, then what could the Israelites do to his people? The irony, actually, of the story is that in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 2, verse 9, we find that God will actually tell the Israelites to leave the Moabites alone and not take any of their possessions because he's not giving them that land. But Balak doesn't know this, and so he's scared. And so we find him, in verse 5, summoning this man, Balaam, for assistance. And Balaam is a seer, he's a medium. You know, maybe nowadays we would refer to him as like a wizard or a witch doctor or something like that. And apparently he's very good at what he does because he has an international reputation. Even though he wasn't a Moabite, Balak knew of him and he knew to summons him. And it wasn't Balak's intent for Balaam to totally destroy the Israelites. In verse 6, Balak's messengers tell Balaam, Now come and put a curse on these people because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. So it's kind of like nowadays we have the U.S. making you know, airstrikes 
on the ISIS forces so that the Kurdish army can have more success in defeating them. And so here Balak's thinking, well, maybe if Balaam could call down like some spiritual airstrikes from above to kind of soften up the Israelites, that would help his army to defeat the Israelites. And Balak is confident, once again, that Balaam can help him because Balaam is very good at what he does. He confirms at the end of verse 6, For I know that whatever you bless is blessed, and whoever you curse is cursed. And looking at Balaam, at first glance, we may think that because of Balaam's abilities and some of the things we found him saying in our scripture reading, that he has a pretty tight relationship with God. You know, God does speak with him directly. We find Balaam also saying things that seem to be right, like in verse 18 of our chapter. In a subsequent chapter, you know, he says things like, even if Balak gave me all the silver and gold in the palace, I could not do anything great or small to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. You know, all these things sound pretty good and make it seem that Balaam is pretty upright. But actually, this is not the case. He's actually pretty self-serving, and he's actually quite greedy. In verse 12, after Balak sends his first delegation, we find God giving Balaam this message. Don't go with them. You must not put a curse with these people because they are blessed. But then after Balak sends the second delegation, he doesn't send them right away. In verse 19, he asks them to spend the night to see what else what God to see what else God might have to say. But why does he need to do this? God already told him, don't go. God already told him he can't curse the Israelites. Is he hoping that God might change his mind? And is he hoping God might change his mind because in verse 17, the second delegation told Balaam that Balak would reward him handsomely and do whatever Balaam says? And God does tell Balaam the second time that he could go. But in verse 22, we find that God was very angry when he went. And that he puts an angel in his way to block the path. And in the rest of the scripture reading, you know, we find what may be a very familiar uh, passage to many of you. You know, the story about Balaam and the talking donkey. And the irony of the story is that the donkey can see what the seer can't see. Balaam knows God's desires, but his selfish nature prevents him from obeying. In verse 34, he says that he would go back if God wanted him to. But why does he even need to ask? God already told him, told him already, you must not go. Even when he was riding his donkey and trying to go, God put an angel to block his path but three times. He's already seen God make multiple efforts to tell him not to go. So why does he even need to ask? In verse 35, you know, we do see that God tells Balaam to go, but maybe it's just because he's testing Balaam to see if he will obey what God already knows God wants him to do. But he goes. And chapters 23 to 24 describes Balaam's encounter with Balak. Balak takes him up to a place where he can see the outskirts of the Israelite camp. Balaam has Balak offers sacrifices in accordance with what he thinks is right. And then Balaam goes to uh, see what God might have to say. Instead of cursing Israel, though, he is only able to bless Israel. So Balak takes Balaam to another location where he can see the Israelites better. 
And Balaam has Balak make similar sacrifices, and then he goes to meet with God. Still, Balaam is already is only able to bless Israel. So frustrated, a third time, Balak continues to persist in his efforts. And so flipping over to chapter 23, verse 27, we find that he takes Balaam to another place where he can see the whole Israelite encampment. He can see, you know, the million plus people that are there. And as he tells Balak at the, or as Balak tells Balaam at the end of verse 27, perhaps it will please God to let you curse them for me from there. And it's interesting because even Balaam is sensing his chance for riches and fame slip away by not being able to curse Israel. Look at what it says in the first verse of chapter 24. Now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not resort to divination as at other times, but turned his face towards the wilderness. You see what's happening here? Balaam knows that God would only let him bless Israel. So he tries to circumvent God's work in the matter. He just looks out towards the wilderness without consulting any spirits, without consulting God, as if he's just going to speak to curse Israel. So even Balaam is persistent in trying to achieve his own selfish gain and keep God out of the picture. And that's why I find the Apostle Peter in writing against false teachers in Second Peter. He says this in chapter 2. He writes in verse 15 to 16 about these false teachers. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of the wickedness. So all this Balaam did was because he was doing it for selfish gain and fame. But he was rebuked by his, for his wrongdoing by a donkey. You know. And you know, though Balak and Balaam were stubbornly persistent in trying to thwart God's plans, God was even more persistent in making sure they weren't successful. When Balaam sought to curse Israel, he could only bless Israel. Even the circumstance, or this instance we find this third time when, he tra- when um, Balaam tries to circumvent God's way, God's uh, interference at the beginning of chapter 24, look at how God responds. At the end of verse 2 of chapter 24, it says that the Spirit of God came on him and he spoke a message to bless Israel. So even when Balaam tried to speak words to curse Israel, God overwhelmed Balaam with his spirit so he could only speak words to bless. And this is just, you know, What we see here is just one of many incidents in Scripture when God's plans face opposition from the outside. You know, it wasn't just the Moabites or Balaam or Balak that opposed Israel. You know, all these nations came against Israel. And though nations opposed Israel, no nation could succeed. In fact, at the end of this third incident, Balaam begins prophesying about other nations. Briefly, you can see this like in verse 20 of chapter 24. He says, Amalek was first among the nations, but their end will be utter destruction. In verse 21, we read about the Canaanites. Your dwelling place is secure. Your nest is set in a rock. Yet you Kenites will be destroyed when Asher takes you captive. And when you think about it, you know, nowadays you don't need, meet anyone who says, oh yeah, I'm an Amalekite. I'm a Kenite. 
Because true to God's word, they're no more. They were destroyed. But you meet a lot of people who have a Jewish background or are Jewish, right? Because God's plan succeeds. No nation could successfully oppose Israel and eliminate them. God would defeat them. Balaam could not call upon any spirits to throw a wrench into God's plans. No outside opposition, physical or spiritual, could succeed because God is undefeatable. And we'll see, though, that God's plans were not only threatened by opposition from the outside, a second way they were threatened was from failure from the inside. What opposing nations failed to do to the Israelites, the Israelites almost did to themselves. In chapter 25, it details an incident when the Israelite men were committing sexual immorality. You can turn to um, chapter 25, and we're going to read verses 1 to 4, just to give you a, 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 you know, a, a brief, uh, in, you know, a brief gl- gl- glimpse of what's going on here. Chapter 25, verses 1 to 4. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. So here we not only have people committing sexual immorality, but the people began or the people were seduced to worship other gods when they were to only worship, you know, Yahweh, Jehovah God. These things, these sins, these acts of apostasy were enough to disqualify Israel. And once again, this is just a snapshot of, of you know, similar acts the Israelites committed. If you did the, the small group study this week on Numbers, you would have gone over some of these incidents just in this book of Numbers. How in Numbers 11, the people began grumbling against the Lord. And then the Lord um, had fire come down and consumed some of them. How in the same chapter, the Israelites complained about only having manna to eat. And they were sick of eating manna. And so God gave them quail to eat, but he also sent a plague that killed some of them. And probably the biggest failure in Numbers we find in chapters 13 to 14, when in spite of God's you know, con- you know, continued promise to give Israel the land, the people refused to have faith in God and take the land because they were afraid. Which is why all those present at the, that time were disqualified from entering the land except for Joshua and Caleb and their families. So many times, you know, Israel committed acts of apostasy which would have easily justified God to give up on this nation Israel. But in his stubborn persistence and gracious love, he never gave up on the nation. People could individually disqualify themselves from receiving God's blessings. And as we saw in the previous incidents, fire came down and consumed some people. People were struck with a plague. Even in chapter 25, because of the sexual immorality and the worship of foreign gods, we find later in the chapter that 24,000 of them died as punishment for their sins. But once again, even though individuals could disqualify themselves, they couldn't prevent God from fulfilling his promise to the nation, Israel. 
It's interesting to note what the Lord had Balaam prophesied in verse 20, 21 of chapter 23. Um, if you flip back to that, the NIV, in that version, it starts off, no more misfortune is seen in Jacob, no misery observed in Israel. But listen to what it says in the New King James Version or in the King James Version. It says this, it says, He has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. You read that like, how can that be? I mean, we just read all these accounts of how the people disobeyed, how they sinned against God, how they rebelled against them. How can they, you know, Balaam make such a statement that no iniquity or wickedness is found in Jacob, in Israel? I think the point is not to say that Israel was sinless. I mean, of course they weren't. We just saw all these sins. But rather, their sins would not cause God to remove his mercy or forsake his covenant promise to the nation. Once again, people could remove themselves or be cursed under the covenant, but God's stubborn persistence and gracious love would see that his redemptive purposes would come forth. And then a final thing I want us to see is that God is stubbornly persistent and gracious even when it calls for a divine miracle. And this is a very timely point as we enter the Advent season. We saw how in spite of repeated efforts by Balak and Balaam to curse Israel, you know, they could not succeed. Balaam could only bless Israel. So exasperated Balak tells Balaam to go home and that he would leave him with nothing. No reward, no payment, nothing. But before Balak could leave, the Lord put more words in Balak's mouth, more than either of them expected. And so in chapter 24, we find this in verse 17 to 19. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheth. Edom will be conquered, Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. Did you catch that at the beginning? I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. So Balaam is referring to a time far off when a ruler will come out of Israel. One who will bring about the full realization of God's redemptive purposes. And hundreds of years later, that prophecy's fulfillment began with the birth of Jesus. He is the star that would rise out of Jacob. He is the scepter who would come out of Israel. Though we've seen that man was unable to fulfill their end of the covenant in bringing about God's redemptive purposes because of their rebellion and disobedience, God took matters into his own hands and did what man was unable to do. He sent Jesus to this earth to be born a man, to live a perfect life and be sacrificed to fulfill the penalty of man's rebellion. But death could not conquer him. He rose from the dead and he will come again to bring about the complete fulfillment of God's redemptive purposes. And so as we've begun this Advent season, you know, let us reflect on the significance of the birth of Jesus as the fulfillment of God's redemptive purposes and worship God for his divine miracle. 
Recently, when I'm in my car, I'll sometimes uh, turn the radio to um, 106.7. I don't know if you know, but uh, this is a station that plays like nonstop Christmas music. And most of the time, it's just these silly secular songs that they play, so I just immediately turn the station to something else. But every once in a while, there's a song that they'll play that will just really grab my attention. And it will cause me to pause and reflect on the Christ child, on the one who will reign and restore order and bring about healing. You know, songs like Joy to the World, you know, like some of the lyrics, you know, are joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, for as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. And when you stop to pause and just kind of reflect on songs like these, you realize there's a lot of spiritual depth you know, to these lyrics. And so as we go through this Advent season, I mean, we all have these short, quiet moments that cause us to pause and reflect. You now think about what significance does the birth of Christ and the fulfillment of God's redemptive purposes have for each of you? And for those of us who call ourselves Christ followers, remember that God doesn't just call us to acknowledge this truth, but to play a role in bringing about this fulfillment. Because we have been reconciled back to God, we are the ones to exemplify Christ's work by promoting reconciliation and healing. Because we have heard the gospel message and are saved, we are to promote God's work by spreading the truth of the gospel. And on the other end, we need to be careful that we are not living in disobedience to God or rebellion such that it could disqualify us from God's plans. Let us not be like Balaam who seemed to say all the right things and, and knew you know, the right things to say and do, but his heart and motives betrayed him. We find later on in Numbers that Balaam actually had a hand in getting the Moabite women to seduce the Israelite men, which we read about in Numbers 25. And for all these reasons, you know, Balaam was killed when the Israelites attacked Midian. And we saw other instances where the Israelites themselves disqualified themselves from God's purposes. So are you a person who is helping to bring about the fulfillment of God's redemptive purposes? Or are you disqualifying yourself from them? You know, know that God is stubbornly persistent and graciously loving and fulfilling his redemptive purposes. As it says in Numbers 23, verse 19, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Of course, he promises and fulfills. No one or nothing can thwart his redemptive plans. So let us be living our lives in accordance with his purposes and not do anything that could jeopardize or disqualify us from being part of his redemptive purposes. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, especially during this Advent season, as we remember the birth of Jesus, as we remember this divine miracle you sent to this earth to fulfill 
to be the, the ultimate fulfillment of your redemptive purposes. Lord, let us worship you for that and worship Jesus for being the one who would come down to save us and sacrifice himself for us. And Father, we know that though a complete uh, fulfillment of these redemptive purposes will not, uh, will not you know, totally happen until Jesus comes again, we know that we are called to go and help bring about these redemptive purposes even now to promote healing and reconciliation and justice, to spread the message of the gospel, to exemplify the gospel that we preach. So Lord, may you allow us to do this. And Lord, may you protect us from ever doing anything that could disqualify us from being part of your plans. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.